This is the Commercial Property Show Australia. Show number 19. That property, we built three modular apartments on the back door. We've now ended up with four residential units and a shop. Look, we've probably spent overall a few million dollars in building those apartments, but at least another 50% uplift from the money we've spent in value and certainly in cash flow. Commercial property community, thank you for joining me again. My name is Andrew Bean. Today's show is all about adding value to retail property. If you love upsides, and I know you do, then you are going to love this show. James Dawson shares the upsides that he looks for in all of his deals. He also shares the upsides that are less expensive to the more expensive ones. If you're looking to purchase retail property, you have to listen to this show. Investing in commercial property is a lot like a team sport. You need a lot of good players around you to complete a property transaction. No one can do it alone. If you're like me and want to surround yourself with like-minded people who have similar property goals, people who motivate you and push you to achieve more, then come and join the commercial property community today. Go to www.commercialpropertyshow.com.au. Our expert guests are just waiting to answer your questions in the forum. And together, we can help each other reach the ultimate goal of financial freedom. Today's guest is surfboard riding, Mr. James Dawson. How are you, mate? Great. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks for having me on. You are welcome, mate. Have you ever seen a shark out in the water, mate? I have. Well, I mean, you know, I see a lot more dolphins than sharks. And, uh, of course, the initial... um, sort of half second shock you get from seeing a dolphins probably just gets you a bit used to maybe seeing a shark but I must admit I have seen you know a couple sort of swimming around underneath there at water goes um you know or at the past just underneath people's boards and all that and I've even been we've been flagged out of the water a couple of times in like recent months um but the amazing thing is you know you get back into your car and then a whole new lot of people come down to the beach and they're all back in the water yes <laughs> yeah, that's right because yeah. there are more sharks around than people probably realise, aren't there? Oh, absolutely. And I think, I mean, I personally would never put me off surfing, but I know some people, you know, have a total phobia with those things. But, you know, pretty much it's it's their realm, isn't it? So we've got to respect them. Yeah, <laughs> <So>. that's right. <laughs> all right, mate. Well, today's topic is all about adding value to retail assets. So, James, is it safe to say that your favourite type of asset is retail? Uh, look, not really. I'm sort of, I guess, probably my least favourite. It's probably the easiest one to say at the moment. My least favourite asset, commercial asset right at this moment is uh, would be an office in a large office block, just given, you know, the constantly changing uh, COVID situation. But certainly 
retail in large malls like, say, Westfields, etc. We all know they've been suffering because people are frightened to go in malls. But retail that's on a normal strip shop street or in a small regional or suburban shopping centre like the one I have, for example, or the one you see all dotted around everywhere, they're really good properties, you know, because people can drive up to them, you know, with social distancing and all that, quite easy to handle and can get in. They're visible from the street. People like to be able to park near where they want to go. I know, say, in Byron, for example, everything's only two storeys high, so the shop's on the street and, you know, you park in front of the shop, go and get what you want and, and go, you know, whereas the larger malls, it's a bit trickier. So I really have this preference for a nice retail property in a well-located strip, but also I'm quite keen on industrial and that sort of industrial slash retail property that you'll see quite often now, which could be something, for example, like a, a Reese plumbing outlet that has, you know, the showroom at the front and then the trade plumbing area at the back, that sort of thing. Or, uh, you know, it might be a place that sells motor scooters that, you know, it's got the showroom at the front, but then you can get your motorbike service at the back and, and you can have a coffee as well. You know, all these sort of things that are sort of getting this crossover effect. Yeah, like your bulky goods retail. Bulky goods retail, you know, brilliant. I'm looking at a couple of deals to those recently and like furniture and all that, of course, during this COVID is selling heaps of furniture. Apparently Harvey Norman's been busy as ever. And the big box stores where you go in and like uh, the good guys, all those sort of people, I think uh, they're, they're great tenants. And certainly with everyone sort of hunkered down at home, people are focusing on their home. And, and same thing with, uh, you know, like Bunnings Hardware is a classic, isn't it? You know, hardware shops. If I had a shop that had Mitre 10 as a tenant, I think I'd probably be quite happy if it was well located. So, you know, it's still with all this time, I guess, it's sort of prudent to note that, People still are out and about, even though it is more difficult in Victoria at the moment, I know, with restrictions on, you know, five kilometre radius restrictions and all that. But generally speaking, the rest of Australia, people are out and about with social distancing, still going into shops, cafes, etc. in some form. Simply all of us are over staying at home, I guess. So, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that's it, mate. So have you owned property in all the different sectors? I haven't had any industrial property, so I'm sort of looking perhaps towards that. And another actually favourite of mine would be would be self storage, which is yeah. also done pretty well during this COVID. A well placed and located self storage facility is a pretty easy property to have. Yeah, fantastic, mate. When you're looking for a retail property, what's the first upside you usually look for? The first thing I look for is to see, you know, generally if there's any vacancies around that property. And, you know, obviously if you've got a strip shop in a suburban area, for example, and there's 10 shops and there's five vacant, that's not a good look. So there's gotta be a reason for that. But if there's one vacant or no vacancies, even better. And then the next thing I look for to try and determine if there's an upside, and there's two things here, I guess, two parts to it. If it's a retail property, uh, which is like a classic property in Sydney and Victoria, which has got you know, the retail downstairs, an apartment above, you know, like a terrace house and then just a backyard. I want to look at the backyard just in my first initial look to see if there's good lane access, parking at the back. And I usually know that there's potential to build something on the back or do something on the back or at least renovate what's above that retail shop. So I sort of look at that first. And then, so that's a big future upside that's obviously going to cost you time and money to engage but 
one of the most effective and easiest upsides to look for and to engage is something that's under market rent. You know, so for example, if you've got a strip of shops and most of them are paying $500 a week and you're looking at a shopping that's only paying $400 a week, it's probably a pretty safe bet depending on the lease that maybe in, you know, 12 months time or two years time, you can get that rent up to more of a market value. Sometimes not all the way up because you don't want to kill the tenant in there, but that can therefore then give you an increase in value. Yeah, I've heard that from many professional investors. That's the best upside to look for is that under-rented property where you can over time gradually increase it because it's free basically doing that. That's right. And, and look, sometimes though, you know, just diving deeper into that, you have to consider that you might, if you've got a really great tenant, it might be like a hair salon, for example, that's been there for 20 years. Obviously, they're not going to be keen on you jumping the rent up 20% in one go. So it might be something where you may offer a couple of small incentives to help them along the way. And quite often tenants realise that the rent's got to go up at a market review. It's just that someone, the previous owner, may have been lazy and not engaged the market review at all, or, you know, may have just been, you know, a little bit hopeless in the management of the property. So it might be something where you say to the tenant, look, I need to put the rent up to a certain amount, but we'll let you off any increases for the next year, or I'll put a new split system, air conditioner in the property, something like that. I mean, that's something that I believe in doing. Some landlords perhaps are a lot harder than me, but... You know, I want to really keep, and I think this is brought out particularly during this COVID, you know, if you can keep your tenant in the property and keep them happy and the rent rolling in, everyone's happy. So it's very important to try and keep that continuity. Yeah, definitely. So just jumping back to how you said you wanted to inspect the backyard, would you always want a dual access to the top floor? Quite often you'll find in those small buildings that the perfect scenario is generally to have a street walk access to the upper floor or lift, something like that, depending on the building. But definitely access at the back to the car parking is generally what happens as well in that situation. But very often, and as was the case with one of my own properties, the only access was from the back of the property for the upper apartment. So obviously then it becomes important to gauge what the quality of that access is like and, uh, and for example, my one in Bondi, sometimes the lanes don't have any name, they're just the back lane, but the lane at the back of the property was called Ocean Lane. I thought, well, that's got quite a nice name, you know, so that helped. It's just those little things that if you're thinking about, you know, perhaps building something there later on, obviously the quality of the access and the ability to get cars in and out is going to be fairly important thing to look at. And, and you might, before you even buy that property, get an architect or a local town planner, a private town planner to come and have a quick look or not even, they don't even have to go to the property, they can do it all online, of course. So they can check that out for you and let you know what might be possible on the backyard. But of course, you never want to tell the agent that, that you're looking <laughs> building something there, because that's something you just want to keep up your sleeve. So certainly a um, bit of a tip there. Yeah, that's a good one. So do you have a favourite upside that you usually execute on all of your deals? Well, another favourite upside that I've got is buying property, just like the one that I've got up near Bribie, that is part vacant or even mostly vacant in the case of that property, and then buying it based on, on the rents that are pretty much coming in at the moment and sort of almost getting the other spaces for free. So when you rent those spaces out, 
you've had quite a big material change, obviously, in the income of the property, and therefore you've had a big change in the value of the property, and it's easy to get it revalued to a new higher value simply by leasing the spaces out. Now, that strategy is not for the faint-hearted and probably not for people who don't have some good equity in another property, but that's definitely a great way to go is to buy something like that that you know might have three tenants and might be one vacant. And you might find that you can get a much better rent for that vacancy than you're getting from the first two shops, for example, just by tarting that space up, presenting it well, rebranding the building, doing all those things that really improve the look and feel of the property and then get a higher rent for that and then get a pretty big increase in value because of it. Yeah, I guess you need to have your cash reserves and buffers for that if you're going to go down that kind of strategy. That's right, exactly. And, you know, you can work all this out before you go ahead with the property. And I know people that just run around and will make offers just with properties that are part vacant and they will make offers just based on the rents that are coming from the one or two tenants that are in there, and they just walk away if they can't get it at that price. Yeah, I actually, I've done that a few times with agents, and they'll give you the rent roll, and they'll give you a price, and it's on the fully tenanted rent roll. You're like, what the hell is this? How can I pay that when you know there's only this amount of money coming in? You tell it to the agent, and they give you all this spiel about how it's going to be so easy to rent it up you're thinking well why aren't you doing that before you put it on sale you know that's right and you know there's costs involved in getting a vacant space rented i mean first cost of course you've got maybe six months of paying the mortgage for example which is fine if it's handled by buying the property at a great price because you're getting the rent from the other two tenants maybe but you've also got the costs of you know, marketing the property, paying the agent his 10% or 15% commission on the first year's lease maybe, keeping the property clean, tidying up the property, you might have to paint it, might do new lighting. So all these things can add up. And I mean, on a small shop, it might add up to, you know, 60, 70, $80,000. So when you're doing your sums, you obviously have to know that you can afford to pay that amount of money and use that as a bargaining chip. And as you say, you know, a lot of the agents just refer to what they think it's going to be rented for without allowing for any of those costs. Yeah. So, mate, we've spoken about the finding an under-rented property. Are there any other upsides that are cost-effective like that where you don't really have to put too much money into it? Well, one of the best ones ever is digital signage. And I've got a number of people in my course that they just solely look for properties that can have the ability to have a digital advertising sign on the building. So that is a great strategy. And I mean, it's something that probably requires a fair bit of legwork or internet work at least, because there's a number of sign companies in Australia that will simply approach your building as an area where they can advertise and they will negotiate a lease with you for that space on the wall. Because usually it has to be in an area that's got high traffic flow, subject to all sorts of council rules. But the sign companies handle all that, all the digital outdoor advertising companies handle all that for you. And, you know, I've heard of people getting twenty to $300,000 a year rent for signage. Yeah, wow, that's a good one. Yeah, and they'll sign a 20-year lease. Quite often, too, they'll even allow you to have a demolition clause in the lease. So if you want to redevelop the building, you know, they have to take their sign down and then they might have an agreement to put it back up. And, you know, there has been a sale in Melbourne about three years ago 
where someone just sold the space on the wall for the digital sign. <laughs> and uh, I think that was for $3 million. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So, you know, and I mean, it's like if you look at photos of Times Square in New York and you see that a lot of the buildings there are completely covered in signage and they're earning more rent on the exterior than they are on the interior. That's amazing. So that's just a little niche market, and I know a couple of people have done really quite well out of that. Now, just one point with that, though, let's say you're getting 20000 a year extra rent from a sign. That's fantastic for your cash flow, but some valuations will not take all that income into account to boost the value of the building. So sometimes it is more of a cash flow play than an increase in value play. I'm not quite sure why that is, because I just see them as another tenant. But some valuers I've noticed over the years, they sort of say, oh, well, you know, we're not going to take all of that $20,000, for example, into account to increase the value of the property. That's actually quite interesting, because I was just thinking in my head, you got $20,000 and you divide that by the cap rate, it could be a couple hundred thousand dollars increased in value. That's a good tip. Yeah, that's right. Whereas compared to, say, my other favourite upside of renting vacant shops out in something you've bought, look, we recently did, we rented five shops to a gymnasium at 100k a year, and that increased the value by about 1.4 million. Yeah, 100% cap rate. So, and obviously valuers with that, because there's a proper lease in place and they're in the physical space, they seem to take it on board completely and increase the value of your property accordingly. But just with the signage, it's a bit tricky. But, you know, there's nothing wrong with cash flow. And if you're buying a property and you've identified that upside and you can even do that prior to purchasing, which is what all my guys do, they go out and check with the sign companies and my experience has been with the sign companies is that they'll come back to you fairly quickly. They're always hungry for new signage because they make a lot of money out of it. Of course, they rent the space out. They'll give you a lease on your space, but then they rent the space out on the sign and it's flicking over every five seconds with a new a new ad. Yeah, that's interesting. And actually, I've heard of people selling the signage as well, like the actual advertising and cutting out that middleman. Yes, and actually I've got a lady in my course, Melissa, who did that with a local, I think she employed a local advertising guy and she owned that you can buy the electronic sign, so that definitely is an option. I mean, you still have to get approval from the council, et cetera, to have a sign up in the roads and traffic and all that. It's not, it's not the easiest thing in the world, but it can be done. And of course, everyone, I mean, the initial thing with some digital signs were that they thought they were going to cause car accidents and I guess in some locations they, they can, but now as we're all getting used to them, that's less and less of a problem. So you can definitely take that on board privately and just buy your own sign, get someone to sell the advertising for you, even advertise your own tenants as well. So it's a bit of a win-win and do it all yourself. Yeah, it's a good idea. So James, what are some other upsides for retail property? One of the other ones that is often a good thing to look at, particularly in regional areas, is retail property. Sometimes you see in country towns, they've got these huge spaces that they just don't need all that space. And there might be a clothing store or workwear store or something that I saw recently when we were driving out the country and you know, massive space. And that shop could have probably easily been divided in half. And it could be a great win-win because the existing tenant could perhaps get a bit of an upgrade to his space, albeit a little bit smaller, but a lower rent. And then you as the landlord get an upside by renting out the other side and your total rent, you know, almost doubles. So that's quite often something that can be looked at. Another thing is having in those larger spaces 
negotiating with the tenant to perhaps have part of their space become an internal cafe, for example. Okay. And you provide the, the grease trap and the plumbing and the approvals and all that. And once again, you give them a bit of a reduction in their rental amount. And then you then go and source a tenant or have a tenant already pre-organised to take the cafe space, for example, or another type of business. And they're happy because they're within a space and they've probably got a fairly low rent. But overall, for you, it's an increase in income. Yeah, I've actually seen that in some of these shared offices that's it. And, you know, and it can just benefit both parties because, you know, then they've got a cafe there and they've got people coming to that and perhaps coming to their business as well. Yeah, excellent. So, mate, are there any upsides that you're itching to try? I'm itching to try the signage one, absolutely. And I've also got a bit of an idea about industrials slash living spaces. And in Byron, there's a couple of places that are doing really effectively, but they're, you know, huge developments. So, It'd be more along the lines of finding the right location industrial property that also could perhaps not be panel beaters downstairs and someone living above, but might be an architect downstairs and then an apartment above, that sort of thing. So I think that could work well in some locations because the nature of industrial parks is changing. And in some areas, in some cities, you'll see the older industrial parks that are sort of almost in the city that would lend themselves to different usages. That's a, that's really interesting. I haven't actually heard of that one before. I could see that working in like Alexandria or Randwick or like, you know, places like that where they have those, or Botany Mascot, where they have those older uh, warehouses. That's a really, really cool idea. Yeah, actually, there's a great development in Byron called Habitat, and they're doing that well. They've got, it's not really industrial, but it sort of has that industrial look, but it's sort of retail with that could almost, it's actually located in the industrial area of Byron Bay, but it's, it's sort of off to one side and yeah, you know, these industrial areas, it's like Byron now is called the arts and industrial estate rather than the industrial estate. So it's not all panel beaters anymore. There's cafes and shops and all sorts of things out there. Yeah, I guess the only thing you have to check there is the zoning to make sure it's permissible in that zone. That's it. And that can be tricky and that certainly has been a bit of a problem in, in Byron, but the council has been able to address it. Do you personally like to have multiple upsides in a deal or would you go ahead to purchase with only one upside? Oh, I think it's very deal specific, you know, and often in some properties, there's not much room for upside, you know, particularly, I guess, the cheaper properties. So if you're buying, say, a strata title, small office investment or something like that, often the only upside really perhaps available is by way of buying something that's under rented. And a lot of people are happy with that because it's set and forget. But one of the best things to do, of course, is to buy cheaper than the average person is buying for because that's an upside in itself as well. And it's just surprising. It's such a basic thing. But negotiating hard can obviously make you very wealthy. So, I mean, I think, for example, if you're in an area where the recent sales have been at 7% and however you do it, you're able to negotiate a deal at at 8.5%, therefore buying the property cheaper, you know, when it comes to revalue that property in say 12 months or six months or 12 months time, the valuers are going to use the average cap rate, which is still 7% pretty much. So you've suddenly got an increase in value. Now, you know, it's not easy to do that, but it's the same old thing. Persistence is the key. Looking at lots of deals, knowing all properties are sort of in micro areas, you know, you go to little area and analyze everything around that little area and generally at some stage something will pop up where you think 
wow, that's cheaper than average or could be cheaper than average. And if you're making good formal offers and have your money organised and you're prepared to perform, you may be able to get a cheaper deal than anyone else has been able to. And then you might even have a double upside buying it cheaper than average and also being able to increase the rent or do something to it later on that really supercharges that property for you. Yeah, I guess the other couple of upsides for a strata type office would be buying a larger one and splitting it. And then also another one that's kind of not as kind of common is a strata office that has a car park, a larger car park, and then you cage up the back of the car park and you sell off that as storage. Yeah, that's right. That's actually a good point because a lot of people don't realise that quite often you can re-subdivide strata title buildings. So if you've got a large strata, you can approach the body corporate and to divide that up. And actually it brings me to one, I'm looking at a friend of my board, a, a property Maruchidor just recently, and it's a strata title block of about eight, I think. And it backs on to the major freeway there. And we did think, well, why don't they have signage there that could be all going into the common pot? You know, so if they rent a sign out, it could be reducing everyone's strata fees, therefore making your property more valuable because you're getting more net rent out of it. And also one thing we've forgotten to mention is, of course, solar panels. And that could be a great win-win. We've done it on one of our properties, about to do it again. It's just either as an incentive for a tenant, you know, that's one way of doing it, or actually getting them cheaper electricity and you getting a bit of a benefit as well by way of maybe a split of the cheaper electricity price for the tenant. And particularly, you know, shops or businesses that are heavy users of electricity and with lots of refrigeration, air conditioning, etc. It's all cranking away during the day when the sun's shining. So why not have solar panels on the roof if it's able to? Yeah, that's it. And I guess that's one of the most effective ways, like an upside, is just reducing the outgoings, isn't it? Yeah, for sure. And that's another thing too, is to, when you're doing your due diligence, quite often you'll see this list of outgoings and strata places or even whole properties that have, you know, cleaning contracts, lawnmowing contracts, you know, all this sort of stuff going on. And and when you really analyse them, you think, wow, you know, someone's getting paid, you know, $400 a week to come and clean the mirrors and the toilets and things. And, you know, there might be someone, a company that'll do that for $200 a week. So it's very important to keep a lid on those costs uh, entirely, or you might find that the gardener doesn't need to come every week, you know, he needs to come every fortnight or three weeks, or the change in landscaping would drastically reduce the outdoor maintenance of a property. So it's a lot of things that I've always discussed with people in the courses, you know, particularly anyone that's got few uh, rental properties, be residential or commercial, I always suggest, you know, review everything every six months. And it's, we all forget, you know, we all get the property and the rent comes rolling in, hopefully regularly. And and then you just leave that ticking away and look for the next shiny deal and without paying attention to existing properties. And I've certainly been guilty of it, but sometimes I get a bit of a shake up when I look at my statement and I think, wow, that bill seems high. And then I've got to backtrack and sort that out. But that's part of the business of having property. And certainly you get paid very well for it. You've just got to concentrate on reducing costs all the time. Yeah, I guess reducing the outgoings as an upside you look for is one of those upsides. It's just it's just not sexy, so people don't talk about it as much. Yeah, absolutely. And look, the whole thing with commercial property is, as you know, it's, it's a numbers game. And whatever you can do to increase the bottom line for yourself and also hopefully make it better for your tenants is going to benefit you in the long run, both in value and having strength of long-term tenants in place. 
Yeah, that's right. So, mate, how long on average would you usually wait to start adding value to a new purchase? I think you've really got to be thinking about that before you buy it and just getting stuck into it right away, even prior to settlement. I mean, there's no reason actually why you can't buy a property on a long settlement and ask the owner for permission to get in and tidy it up. Quite often, they'll be happy to do that and get stuck into it, get it cleaned up. If it's vacant, for example, but if it's not vacant and you've got some ideas, you know, get started on those ideas as soon as you've exchanged a contract and you know that the deal's going ahead. Very important, you know, because the time is of the essence and don't let me delude you things take time you know if you've got to go through approvals and design stuff and sourcing a new tenant i know when we put the gymnasium tenant in it was great we got all very excited of getting you know hundred thousand dollars a year rent uh, which was a good rent for them you know it was a reasonable rent for them and great rent for us but then we had to go through the council approval process and that took, I think, three or four months. So you're sort of sitting on your hands, waiting to see whether they do get approval to operate that business in that space. And that comes back to having good documentation on a property, actually, because we had all the plans and everything necessary to lodge the approval without having to redraw stuff, which was great. We had all uh, what's called the DWG files, which is sort of the architecture files for the CAD system. So, you know, all those things, you really need to make a bit of a plan and see where you're going, just get stuck into it. Because once you increase the rent of a property, for example, and in that case of the gymnasium, as soon as they sign the lease, you could effectively go back to the bank and say, look, I've now got this new tenant. It's a substantial increase in income. I want to revalue. You might have already spent some money, so you might want to get that money back out. So that can take time. And I generally would say, yeah, it's going to take at least six months for you to get something up and running and then, you know, get into that position where you perhaps can refinance it. So, mate, can you give me an example in your own personal portfolio where you've executed an upside and then give me details on like how much the property increased? I know you've spoken about the gymnasium quite a few times. Is there another one that you'd like to talk about? Oh, the uh, the Bondi one where the gymnasium one was, was a good one, I guess, because it was just existing space. So renting that out, that was a relatively easy process, although we knew that it was going to take a couple of years to get that property sorted out. And, and it has taken longer because of the COVID, but that doesn't matter. It was positive cash flow when we bought it, right? So that's the overall thing with that one. If you can buy them correctly at the start, you can take a bit of time and, you know, a year or two goes past very quickly. So other ones that I've done are actually building things and splitting blocks off. And building, to me, I'm not a developer. I've built lots of stuff, but it's my preference probably not to be a developer. And the one at Bondi that we did was the buildings turned out fantastic development with building some apartments at the back and also refurbishing the old part of the building. But there were a few surprises in doing the refurb, you know, just sort of upgrading to fire regulations Ultimately, it's fantastic because you've got a great product to sell, but it costs more than our initial estimate. So we just had to suck that up and move on with that. But uh, I would prefer the more simpler upsides, I guess, in the future. Maybe that's because I'm getting a little bit older. I'm getting lazy. (laughs) (laughs) So this is the property that you used a modular design. So can you explain what that is? And then can you tell me how much that it was supposed to cost and then how much it actually costs? And then how much it actually increased in value? 
Yeah, so I guess that property, we built three modular apartments on the back of the property and we've got strata approval. So we've now ended up with, you know, four residential units and and a shop. And I guess, look, we've probably spent overall a few million dollars in building those apartments and upgrading the older section front part of the property. But I would say there'd be at least, I actually haven't had a, a new valuation on that property, but I would say there'd be at least another 50% uplift from the money was spent in value and certainly in cash flow. Because, and the simple reason of that is that with any of these properties that you have the backyard available to build on, you've already paid for that. But when you build on it, you're sort of unlocking the value of it. Does that make sense? Yep. Yeah, definitely. So, you know, if it's just sitting there empty and then suddenly you build something on there, you can collect rent and create a something that you can sell. Obviously, you're then unlocking the land value component of that property. So I think, yeah, most developers, I was chatting to a developer the other day who said, oh, look, he's he's happy to get 15% return on a development, which I remember people used to say they wanted 20 or 25% profit on a development. So if you've already bought a building and it's covered by the rental income when you buy it, and then you've just got time to develop something on the back, well, obviously, there can be a huge uplift in the percentage return on profit return, I guess. So that's been an interesting one, but, you know, it took a long time. We had a lot of design process and all that, but it was okay because we were collecting rent on the building anyway. So can you just explain what a prefabricated modular design <laughs> build is? Yeah, so there's lots of actually, it's a great uh, Googling process, or if you've got a bit of time, just Google modular builds in Australia, because when the blocks are tight or you've got an existing building at the front and you sort of want to maintain the tenancies there, these buildings essentially get built in a factory. You know, this one we had built were in Melbourne and the property was in Sydney, so they all got transported up and they were installed in one day. I think there was 11 semi-trailers arrived It was a very big day. All the streets were blocked off, including Bondi Road. And, you know, it's a big operation, massive cranes, but they're all installed in one day. And then, and basically they had bathrooms, kitchens, ceiling fans, air conditioning, all that already in them. Bathrooms are tiled and all that in the factory. But then there's quite a bit of finishing off stuff. So sort of months, a few months after that, till they were able to be rented, I guess. But still a much shorter process than, say, a nine-month build where you may be disrupting or not able to have your tenants still paying rent at the front of the property. Yeah, so these buildings, they're actually on top of the other building, isn't it? It just connects like a a Lego, doesn't it? Yeah, that's right. So these ones, I mean, quite often actually, you know, people will just put one module on, like a granny flat type module, but ours had car access at the bottom and then three levels above that. So there was actually sort of four modules and they were broken up in each module was broken up into two and some of them three. So, you know, there was lots of parts to put together, but they actually assemble them all standing up in the factory as if they're on the block of land. And then they pull them apart into separate pieces, uh, wrap them all in plastic and then re-put them up on the property. But I would say, though, you know, always wise to investigate the standard method of building as well, I would imagine. And don't just get locked into, you know, tunnel vision into modular build because it may be that you may find that for your particular site and property, you might get a better job or more creative job done with a standard build. Yeah, I have looked into it a few times, actually, for a project that actually fell through. The price was significantly lower 
But then if you're actually attaching it to a building, an existing building, then they can bring it back up to kind of a normal rate. So maybe it didn't work out. Yeah. And one other issue which may have resolved is that the banks don't really like financing them. It's a bit tricky for them because they're getting built off site. So if you're sort of chasing the money, it's a bit like you bought a million dollar Rolls Royce, which, you know, obviously you could go and buy and just drive out of the showroom. But the banks sort of got this uh, property, even though they've got you know, scan codes and everything on all parts of the modules. We actually end up, we pay cash for the modules because the banks, I think our current bank at the time, only wanted to lend 35% or 30% of what it was going to cost. And I thought, well, if we had to find 70%, we might as well find 100% and just do it ourselves and then refinance at the end. Yeah, well. So, mate, can you give me an example of a deal like your worst deal where you thought you had a great upside and it didn't end up panning out. Oh, look, there's been a, quite a number. I mean, one that I was looking at in uh, Brisbane where I thought it had just a fantastic backyard and I thought, oh, wow, well, I'll be able to do some stuff in that backyard. And I was just led down the garden path by the agent and was sort of trusting him for a number of weeks with information he was providing. And, of course, it was a total flood zone. And I didn't go ahead with the deal, but I just thought, oh, you know, you could have easily just signed a contract on that property, given what he had said. And he was always saying things like, yes, it should be fine. And absolutely, I think you could do this. And I'd have buyers for that and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, obviously I was going to check it, but I was disappointed that I'd spent a little bit of money and, and time, or time's the most important thing, and just realised that it was just another lesson that you continue to get, you know. Most people are honest, but some people just tell you anything. And they were telling me complete falsehoods about the whole property, essentially. So I wasn't very happy. Yeah, well, I bet you were. All right, mate. So is there anything else you'd like to put forward about upsides for retail property? I think one of the biggest things is, Andrew, is for people to get educated and really know how to work out the basic numbers on a property and how to look at that local area where that property is and really get as much knowledge about that local area so that you can make a very informed offer on a property and hopefully buy it cheaper than anyone else. Fantastic advice, mate. And if you'd like to learn more about how to use commercial property to reach financial freedom, James has a free webinar that you can directly access via the Commercial Property Show affiliate link, which is www dot james dawson commercial dot com dot au forward slash cps and where else can they contact you james yes uh, my website james dawson property dot com dot au fantastic mate today's guest has been james dawson thanks mate thanks andrew chat soon are you sick of being tied down to a job you hate wouldn't you like to choose if and when you want to work Cash flow from commercial property is one of the best ways to replace your income and wave bye-bye to that day job. It's not unusual to receive 50 to 100 to even $200,000 of net income from one commercial property. Imagine not having to work, but you still get that paycheck each month. I'm taking steps to make this a reality for me and my family. Like me, the first step you need to take is investing in knowledge. James Dawson's Commercial Property Cashflow Blueprint is the number one online course on the subject in Australia. 
If you want to take your commercial investing to the next level, do what I did and invest in yourself first. Go to www.jamesdawsoncommercial.com.au forward slash CPS to check out his free webinar. And you can find the affiliate link in the show notes. That brings us to our newest segment to the show, and that segment is called Ripper Resource. In this segment, I'm going to share some resources that I have personally used, read, or listened to that have made a big difference in my life, and I think they deserve to be shared. So, this week's Ripper Resource is The Miracle Morning by Hal Elrod. This book is about starting your day off right so you can perform at your peak throughout the day and get the most out of your life. So, if you're not a morning person, this book is still for you. It really does show you the way how you can become a morning person. I've implemented this into my life and the days that I miss, the days that I don't get up, I just don't have as good or productive day. And there's a whole miracle morning movement around this book, which has now become a series of books. So if you want to take your life to the next level, this book is a really great start. And it's this week's Ripper Resource. The Miracle Morning by Hal Elrod. That's the end of the show for another week. Don't forget to rate, subscribe and review. Thank you to my guest, Mr. James Dawson. Special mention to Kevin McLeod for the music. And remember, in the words of Grant Cardone, be obsessed or be average. I'm Andrew Bean, signing off. This has been a Developer Life production. 